0: we need to encourage our young people to think. And I've always encouraged young people to question because we're interested in truth and all truth is Christ's truth. So we shouldn't be afraid of any of that. Hello
1: and welcome to Candid, where we never settle for less than the truth. I'm your host, Jonathan Youssef. Each week we'll tackle tough issues, answer your hard questions, and take a candid look at the Christian faith. I'm excited to introduce you to one of my friends. One of the things I love about Candid is introducing people who I have met during my time overseas. David Robertson is from Scotland. He was a minister and apologist there for 18 years before moving to Australia to help serve in an evangelistic outreach. He's a gifted apologist who can explain complex theological truth in a simple and engaging way. He has written several books, including *The Dawkins Letters*. He has the We Flea blog, and he has recently released *Ask: Real World Answers to Real World Questions*. In it, he takes questions from young people around the world about Christianity and provides simple but profound answers. David, thank you so much for being on Candid.
0: Thank you. It's a privilege to be with you all the way from Sydney.
1: All the way from Sydney. So we've we're, it's evening here and early morning there. We do appreciate you making the time to talk to us. You know, David, I wonder if you could just, um, for those who maybe aren't familiar with you, um, uh, probably mostly in the U.S., just take a few minutes and, and tell us a little bit about yourself and your ministry.
0: Sure. Um, There are some in the U.S. who will know me through the Janet Parshall show in the market because I do a show with her every month. But the vast majority of people won't know and neither should they. Um, I'm basically a Scottish Presbyterian minister uh, in the Free Church of Scotland. I was minister in a small Highland church for six years and then for 27 years in a church that will be known to some of your listeners who know um, church history. That's the church of Robert Murray McShane. Uh, I was there for 27 years. And then this year, I've come to Australia to do a uh, an outreach project called Third Space. I'm married to Annabelle. I have a son who's a church planter in Dundee, Scotland, with wife and two grandkids. I have a daughter who's in London and who just got engaged this week. And I have another daughter who's in the Blue Mountains in New South Wales, not far from here. And she's married and she also has two children. So. Wonderful. I do a lot of writing. I have a. Uh, I'm probably better known as the weekly kind of a blog that I write, uh, and a lot of people have followed that. And I've written some books, and write articles, and do various things.
1: Well, congratulations on uh, your daughter's engagement. And my grandparents actually lived up in the Blue Mountains, so uh, we All have right. we have a bit in common there. David, you've written um, a handful of books, and uh, the one I want to talk about today is your most recent one, and it's called. Ask, A-S-K, Ask, Seek, Knock, and uh, the subtitle is Real World Questions, Real World Answers. Can you tell us a little bit about this book?
0: Well, what happened, for me it was quite amazing because um, I did a lot of work with children and young people in the church, and I see that young people have loads and loads and loads of questions. So initially I was going to write something for 10 to 12-year-olds, but then I ended up contacting young people in about 21 different countries. And I asked them, not their youth leaders, but I asked them that young people who were connected with church or going to church to send me in any questions they would have. And I wrote this for 15 to 17-year-olds. I got hundreds of questions. I distilled them down to 52. Um, obviously, your listeners are smart, so they'll have worked out one a week. Uh, I left the questions exactly as they were. And I thought, I will just put a Bible verse, a Bible passage, some commentary, if you like, on the question, some discussion about it. My aim was not to say, here is the definitive answer, but more to show this is how you can think about it biblically. And then I put a further reading if people were interested, and a prayer and questions to consider. And I was really delighted with Christian Focus because they, they weren't sure about it at all, and they decided to... Um, make it a hardback edition which is unusual for a teenager book (laughs) and it's just gone remarkably well in fact it it sold out within a couple of months and they've reprinted it I'm just really really thankful that it's being used not just amongst young people there's a a market we weren't aware of which is older people lots of older people are reading it and you know I packaged it for 15 to 17 year olds and someone said to me no 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 it's 10 to 90 year olds Um, and For me, it's been really encouraging, because I think there are a lot of adults who don't want 7,000-word academic answers to questions, but they do want some answers. And that's what I try to do. So that that was the purpose of the book.
1: I feel like older people, you know, well, if a child's asking the question, I feel like I should know the answer. So I'm not going to ask the question. But the simplicity of the questions get right to the the heart of the issue that's at stake, you know, instead of sort of making it flowery language or or filling it with fluff or something. So, you know, it it really is quite succinct and clear, and I really appreciate it.
0: Thank you for that. I mean, because that was the intention. You see, I do a lot of what I guess some people might call apologetics. I don't call it that. I call it persuasive evangelism, but (laughs) I do a lot of discussion and debates with people. And it's interesting People say people aren't interested, and I don't agree. But I'll say this, that the hardest questions I've ever been asked are from 12-year-old kids. And I've been interviewed by BBC journalists, journalists from The Times, academics. None have been as hard as the questions from the kids. Hmm. My view is I have a very simple philosophy that if you can answer a question from a 12-year-old kid, then you can answer anyone's question. But if you can't answer their question, you can probably answer nobody's. So, you know, that I feel is an area that God called me to.
1: Mm. Of the hundreds that came in from around the world, were there, uh, uh, you know, and I I know you've sort of, um, you've distilled them to these 52, but was there one or two or three in particular that really were being asked over and over and over with regularity?
0: Yeah. Now, here's the thing that really surprised me. Um, I thought that basically every country, every that you would get questions about suffering. And here's the fascinating thing. All of the questions about suffering came from Western countries. Not one came from other countries where there was usually a lot more suffering. So I thought that was fascinating. The other thing that surprised me was there, there weren't a massive amount of questions about creation evolution. In fact, there weren't any about creation and evolution. There were some about creation and science and so on. But the one area where every single continent, pretty well every single country, questions were asked was on issues of sexuality and gender. And I think that shows the power of the Internet. Mm. Um, I think that that has risen out of all of that. Um, And so the, the cover itself is actually the designer's biometric hand uh, because your biometric hand it's like your dna it's unique mm. to you mm. and so many of the questions were about identity and I, I find that just absolutely fascinating there were unusual questions you know i think um, i think one of my favorites was somebody asking what would jesus do about north korea uh, <laughs> that's a question that came from south korea rather Mm. So, you know, that just gave me an opportunity to talk about our relationship to governments and things like that, mm. and to dictators and and so on. So, yeah, I mean, questions of identity came from every single continent. That was the thing that surprised me the most.
1: It is fascinating that the suffering question comes up with um, the Western countries. And I I want to get back to that in a second. But I, I do want to get to uh, the point that you've raised, which is that. And the issue of identity and gender and relation to the Internet, because each of those you discuss um, in some sense separately. Um, I wonder if you could delve in a little bit um, on that. Maybe we start by talking about what the the influence of the Internet to this generation and then as that connects and relates to um, identity and gender and all these roles. I wonder if we can just talk through that a little bit.
0: Sure. So um, you're a teenager and you're going through what all teenagers go through, you know, hormonal changes, a whole bunch of other stuff. Maybe you're struggling with some different things and you're online and you're on YouTube or something. And then these videos come up. They've got millions of views of people who say, "Do you know, I was really, really unhappy until I discovered that I was trapped in the wrong body. Mm. And It's all very cleverly presented. And you start thinking, you know, maybe that's what's wrong with me. Maybe that's why I'm unhappy. And so a narrative is introduced which really messes around. Basically, your body's been mucked around already, and that messes with your head. And so suddenly you start thinking, yeah, maybe, you know, maybe that's the case. So, I mean, if, if any of your listeners were involved in counseling, they would know that it's extremely bad counseling to suggest to people things because you as a counselor in a position of power well when these things are coming on in terms of the internet you'll say oh yeah maybe and the other thing with the internet what you can do is you can gather it in fact you don't even need to gather because it does it for you now with algorithms people who are like you or people who think so you, you have these things where they are unchallenged hmm. so people are watching this stuff and nobody challenges it because it's not permitted to challenge it and because they filter out um almost automatically, any kind of challenge. So uh, there is that influence. It's very quickly spread. It's very often very shallow. It's out of context. But because it's seen, because it's visual, because it's very emotional, people go, yeah, I can identify with that. Mm. And because it also can be done in private. So your parents don't need to know. Uh, You know, virtually everyone's got a mobile phone you see it on your phone. So it's very, very pervasive and it's very, very insidious. Now, my argument is that the internet can be used for good, a lot of good. You know, we're re- doing this recording over the internet. Hmm. So um, and I hope this is a good, you know. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> this is a good thing. It's uh, a good
1: thing.
0: <laughs> yeah, but I think the statistic was in my own city of Dundee, the city I've just left, 40% of 10-year-old boys had seen Really hardcore pornography on their phones and I'm talking about stuff that would make you sick. I wouldn't Mm. I mean I wouldn't even talk about it And once they've seen that they can't unsee it You know, it damages them. It it does so much harm to them and I think there's an awful lot of that Going on within the culture now, that's at the extreme end, but there are other ideologies That get taught into the, the whole of this, you know, which do a great deal of harm so we need to be aware of it. We need to counter it by using it for good. But also, we need—I uh, think this is where the church comes in, where the community of God's people—and that's also with the young people. That's why I wanted the young people to talk. And I'll give you one example in particular, Jonathan. You know Sydney here, and you know that there's some marvelous Christian churches, mm-hmm. particularly amongst Sydney Anglicans.
1: Right.
0: And uh, there's a convention, thousands of Christians gathering up in the Blue Mountains. It's a wonderful, wonderful thing, you know, and. I went and spoke at the main convention, but I also spoke to some of the young people. There was a same-sex marriage debate, and I asked how many of you here, if you've been able to vote, would have voted against the same-sex marriage legislation? And about, I think, 50% said yes. And then about uh, 30% said they didn't know, and about 20% said they would have voted for it. Now, what struck me was not when I discussed with those who would have voted for it. But with those who voted against or would have voted against, I said to them, why would you have voted in? And virtually none of them could say Mm -hmm. because they kind of knew it was wrong because they'd been told it was wrong. But they weren't thinking about why. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: And I, I thought, no, this is not good. We need to encourage our young people to think. And so that's really where I've I mean, I've always encouraged young people to question because, you know, we're interested in truth, and all truth is Christ's truth. So we shouldn't be afraid of any of that.
1: Yeah, I, I, you know, you're right. I think even from a parenting standpoint, even having a a, a toddler at the moment, but but I'm realizing my opportunities for teachable moments. Um, yeah. Those moments, not for me to just tell him yes or no, while I am the parent and he is the child. You know, he 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 should respect me and 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 do as such, but. There's a moment for me to have an opportunity to explain why, why that's wrong, why that is detrimental to you, why it's my job to protect you, um, rather than just, you know, the authoritarian yes or no. Um, And and I feel like we, we miss a lot of those opportunities. And obviously, parents are missing that opportunity to have that conversation. And part of me wonders if maybe even the parents don't know the real answer, they just know it's wrong, but they don't know why, or they can't explain themselves.
0: Yeah, I think that we've we've become a little bit scared of thinking. So here's the thing: the reason I don't use the word apologetics is because people associate that with being a professor from <laughs> Oxford or Harvard or whatever, right. you know. Or if you're not Ravi Zacharias, then you know, you know, what's the point? That's what apologetics is for. But I argue: forget apologetics. We're talking about First Peter three fifteen, being able to give a reason for the hope that you have. Right. And my argument is every single person can think. My father was a farm worker. In today's society, people would look down at that and go, oh, well, that means he was, you know, not particularly intelligent. And I go, no, no, that's not how it works. My dad would read Martin Lloyd-Jones. He would read different books, you know. I mean, he left school when he was 13. But <laughs> it doesn't mean that you're uneducated. It doesn't mean that you don't think. Right. And I just think people are intelligent in different ways. And I would encourage everyone to think and to work things out. That's Paul in Romans, you know, let your mind be renewed, mm-hmm. you know, by the renewing of your mind. And I honestly think that if we shut things off, if we just say, well, I believe it because I believe it because <laughs> I believe it, we're actually opening the door to the devil. Mm.
1: It's not a solid ground to stand upon. Um, I want to just transition slightly to um, you know you brought up this issue and it's really kind of piqued my interest um, in the way that you've um, laid it out, but the issue of suffering coming primarily from Western countries and not from third world countries or, or countries where suffering is a is a more of a reality, or there's more of it than a Western person might face. And I'm curious to get your thoughts on, on, or even if you've done the research, why do you think that is? Is this sort of a Western ideology that's somewhat new, or, or you know, where's this coming from?
0: I think what it comes from is actually a really false view of God. And it's a kind of what I call God is my granddad theory, that we have this idea, we, so, so we'll pray. Lord, help me pass my exams. Lord, don't let my granny die. Lord, find me a nice girlfriend or boyfriend or whatever. And we think that that's what God does. That's what he's there. He's there to provide for us. And when he doesn't, we then go, oh, I don't believe in that God. Well, that's because he didn't exist anyway. Um, If you read in the Bible, in fact, I mean, God is much, much better than that. But the notion that God is there to maintain us, to make us feel good, to keep us from illness, and so on. That's not correct. And I think that the reaction against suffering is very often a reaction in terms of privilege and entitlement. I'm entitled to this. You know, I have the right. It's back to the human rights thing. I have a right. So, you know, I remember being in the States once, and I remember being at a Christian youth camp and just visiting it. And my two kids were involved in an accident in which a steel rope wire had been left across a road, and they nearly had their heads sliced off. Them, they were taken to hospital and everything, but they yeah. they, they survived. And we're very thankful for them. Um, but the first reaction of the executive pastor of the church who owned it was, "Oh no, we're going to get sued," <laughs> you know. And I just thought, "No, this is the wrong. This is the wrong." I said, "We're not going to sue the church," you know. It's an accident was a mistake and the actual pastor said to me david but that's the mentality here he said you know we just we, we sue for everything and i almost think it's a bit like we're, we're going to sue god you right. know uh, when well, well, my granny died i failed my exams well that's it i'm finished with you you know and it's just wrong it's a wrong view of god it's a wrong view of ourselves it's a wrong view of the world it's unrealistic so i'll give you another uh the opposite of that um Now, I think you get Christians who wallow in misery, and that's not good either. But um, I think of a friend of mine who was a a lovely writer, and she became a writer after her husband died. She'd become a Christian, her husband had become a Christian, and then within a couple of years, he died relatively young. And I remember talking to her, and I remember her saying, he always didn't, he never said, why me? He always said, why not me? You know, lots of people suffer and like sick, so why should I be excluded? Why should I be separate from that? And I think you find that. I mean, another example I'll give in just terms of my own ministry, I was a pastor in a small church up in the Highlands, and I remember there was a couple who didn't come to church, didn't like the church, but we got on quite well. And then their 18-month-old baby died. And, you know, it's one of these funerals you never, ever want to do. It's, you know, an 18-month-old baby in a tiny white coffin. and, And I remember thinking they hated God before. This is going to be even worse. And the following Sunday, the mother was in church, and I, and I said to her, "Why are you here? What are you doing here?" I thought this was the last place she'd want to be. And what she said was, "If there's no God, none of this makes any sense." <laughs> so, mm. well, that that
1: kind of leads me into even uh, the next thing. I've, uh, you know, one of the issues that I think comes up a lot, um, and I, I'm curious if it came up a lot. Obviously, it came up at some point because it's in your book. But the purpose of life. Um, is this something that, that kids are thinking about a lot? Is that a question you received a lot? Or is it more with older kids? Because, I, you know, it's 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 coming up a lot. We've just done a series on, on suicide here. And I, and I think it tends to kind of come a lot to, uh, a lot of it kind of comes on, rests on that particular issue. And I'm just curious from, from a young person's standpoint, you know, is that a thought process that's going through um, and being asked often,
0: I think I'm reluctant to generalize. Sure. So what I would say is this, that it, it depends on the individual person and their circumstances and their culture and so on. Sure. But I would suggest that what happens with this, you're much more likely to think about these things as a young person than you are as an older one. Right. I think it's why more young people are converted, because mm-hmm. they're thinking the deeper questions. I think when you get beyond student age, you kind of, you know, you start thinking about You're busy changing nappies and where are you going to get, you know, pay your tax and all that kind of stuff. I think there are a lot of teenagers who are thinking, you know, where am I going to get my next ice cream or what about this film or what about this computer game and so on. But I still think that underneath all of that, there is this underlying sense of, you know, it's it's particularly when you're a teenager. I think when you're very young as a child and you've got a secure environment, and Mm. that's a big um, caveat. If you have a secure environment, you don't worry. You know, you you don't, you have three-year-olds pondering the meaning of life, but um, as you get older, you begin to ask questions. Now, I think that what happens is as you get older as a teenager, you begin to get answers that are false, but you put all your trust in them. So your meaning in life becomes sport, or your meaning in life becomes a girlfriend or a boyfriend, or your meaning in life becomes, you know, substance abuse or something. But that's because you've already been asking the question, and maybe you're running away from the question. And that's why I think, that, I think that's particularly why I wrote this book, because I just thought there are 15 to 17-year-olds who are – I mean, my aim is to write one for 15 to 17-year-olds who don't go anywhere near a church. Uh, I'm going to call that one Seek, but, um, because I, you know, we, we need to seek them out. But I was thinking here particularly of young people growing up in the church, asking questions, but being a little bit afraid to ask them uh, in their church. So I'll give you one example of this. I did a, an outreach in a, a, a secular bookstore once, and it was with a, a book I'd written called *The Dawkins Letters*. And anyway, this man came up with his daughter, and she was be thirteen years old, and she was very awkward. Um, he was kind of pushing her, and she said, "You know, she wanted to talk." And she basically just asked me to sign the book, which I did. And then she handed me a bit of paper. You know, when she went away, I looked at it, and on it was her email, and a question that was really bothering her. And I just thought, why couldn't you ask it in front of your father? And I discovered, basically, that she thought it was wrong, that she wasn't allowed to ask questions which were cast doubt upon God or the Bible. And I think that's a real shame. You know, we've, it's like in the States. You know, you could go to a Christian school. You could um, grow up in a Christian home. And then let's say you go off to a university, um, and even if it might be a Christian one, actually, this will probably happen to you as well. Suddenly you're faced with things you've never faced before, and your Christianity falls apart unless it's been robustly tested. You know, So I think when you're younger, that's when the question should be asked.
1: Yeah. I, you know, I, I think that's—and I think you've said it, but that seems to be the main thrust of your book. I mean, you, you you're tackling— the individual questions, but the issue is that there isn't or there hasn't been a, a place, a, a sort of a, a safe place for them to feel like they could come and ask, whether it's a parent or you're, you're in a church that sort of frowns upon as if asking the question implies that you're heading in that trajectory or something. Um and I think you're right. It's, it's, we've taken the thinking out of life, out of, uh, you know, really core identity, meaning, purpose issues. Yeah. So I, I guess a question that I would have as a follow-up to that is, is <laughs> what can we as, as individuals and we as the church be doing to help foster that model?
0: I think there are several basic things. For me, first of all, the main emphasis that we have is to teach the Bible as it is, as it is taught to us. So I think an awful lot of Christians pay lip service to the Bible and then look at other things. So I think that is very, very, very important. Um, I think we need to be real. So I think the church is really important. I think the Bible is important. I think a real church where we don't pretend, you know, you, you have these churches where on Sunday... Every service, it's like a performance and everything's always rosy and everything's always wonderful. But when you get into the church, you discover that there's, there's darkness and there's problems and so on. Now, the reality is that's true in every church because all of us are sinners. So I think we need to be much more realistic and much more honest and much more open than often we are um, because we give sometimes a wrong impression. And I think that prayer is absolutely vital. I think encouraging an atmosphere where young people feel free, not just young people, but feel free to ask questions. Now you need to be careful because there are people who just want to cause trouble. There are people who are not asking questions or making accusations. And you need to to be aware of the difference. I think as well in the church, we need to understand the culture we're in. And I think a lot of us, we're... We use some images here in third space, three in particular. One is an open door. We do think there's an open door for the gospel in our culture. But the other is that of shifting sands, that the, the cultural, the ground around us is like Indiana Jones heading for the Temple of Doom. You know, the ground keeps shifting and the spikes keep coming up. And We need to understand, and you'll understand this in Australian or Californian terms, you need to learn to surf the waves, not just stand against them. And then I think um, the other image we use is of living stones. The church is a community of living stones, and I think that's vital as well. So honesty, reality, looking to Christ, focusing on the word, the basics, but live together in community. I think the community is very important. If one of the things that the Internet does, which is very strange, isolates us. They talk about how it's connectivity, bringing the world together. But no, it's not. It's isolating people. So I'll give you an example of that. When I was in Dundee, we were looking to move the manse of the church that we were at, and we wanted to get one nearer the church. And we went to this new-build house, this modern house. And we wanted a large room for a Bible study and things like that. Right. And we went to this what was called executive house, which was meant to be quite expensive and so on. We couldn't afford it anyway. But I remember saying to the estate agent, The living room's tiny. So is the kitchen area. And he says, oh, yes, but that's the way people live nowadays. He said, you should see the bedrooms. They've got, you know, computer (laughs) points in each one. They've got, you know. And I thought, is this what we've come to? This is Mm. modern life where the only room that matters is the bedroom, not the kitchen, not the living room, not the dining room or whatever. And I think that's where we're at in our society. And I think churches need to have community where young people are not separated you know, you do. You can do separate things as young people, but where they interact with older people, and you know, there are people that they can ask and discuss. My view is, if you bring up a child in a stable home, in a Christian environment, with a biblical church, then you're giving them the absolute best start possible in life.
1: We've kind of covered this a little bit, um, and and sort of glanced past it. But I think you know, if you were to say this is the one thing that I want really young and old people to walk away from this book knowing or understanding. What would you say that that is?
0: That the Bible applies to contemporary life and to your life and speaks directly to it. That you don't need to make the Bible relevant. It is relevant. I mean, my argument is that the, it takes a particular gift to make the Bible irrelevant, but that's a gift that the church has <laughs> developed quite well. Um, so I would, I would argue that I want young people to go away with a confidence in the Bible as the Word of God. If they go away looking at this book and saying, oh, oh David was brilliant, I liked his answer here, and, you know, David's got the answers, I fail. Mm. But if they go away thinking, I can go to God's Word, I can pray, I can think for myself, I can ask with other Christians— then I've succeeded. So that's really what I'm wanting. I'm wanting people to go away with an, an increased confidence in the Bible as the Word of God.
1: David Robertson, the book is Ask, Ask, Seek, Knock. Thank you so much for taking the time out of your day, your morning there in Sydney, to come on candid and, and have a chat with us.
0: Okay, now it's a privilege
1: being with you. Thank you very much, Sean. David has such a passion to reach people for Christ. And he has a gift at answering the hard questions. When was the last time you shared Christ with someone? If you're fearful of stepping out, afraid of messing up, or simply overwhelmed by where to even begin, let us help you build up your boldness. This free digital resource will give you eight practical tips that will both encourage you and help you boldly share the gospel with those God puts in your path. To get this week's free digital resource, you simply need to visit ltw.org Candid and sign up. Candid is a podcast from Leading the Way with Dr. Michael Youssef. If you like today's episode, please share it with a friend, leave a review, and subscribe. Don't forget to connect with our social media pages on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Visit ltw.org slash candid to connect with these pages, share your questions with me, and get this week's free download. Have a wonderful week.